but this being is actually an expression of the being of everything. There's one field of being. And this is like, to use a very ancient metaphor, this is like a wave on an ocean of being. It's that, it's an individual expression. And that is, a, is, is not some far out mystical statement. It's the statement which is the heart of every form of modern science. It, 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 and it's, I just think intuitively everyone, you know, there, the universe is a one. Hi everybody, welcome to Transformational Psychology. My name is Ryan Holsapple. Today we are gonna be speaking with Tim Freak, who is a massively impactful spiritual teacher. He recently in 2020 won Kindred Spirit Magazine's Writer of the Year Award. It has also been ranked as one of the top 100 influential spiritual teachers by Watkins Magazine. He's written 35 books, including bestsellers. He has been teaching and exploring spirituality through his cogent philosophical mind for many years and today we're going to start with a guided meditation why are we starting with a guided meditation because i want to give you the audience the opportunity to listen to this podcast from a deeper place of connection so that you'll be more receptive to the ideas and also open you up to tim's teachings and the power of meditation and how that might make an impact in your life if you're someone who's interested in it. If you're already a meditator, then great. It's just an opportunity to listen to a short five-minute guided meditation at the beginning. Tim and I get into all sorts of different things philosophically in this conversation. We talk about what does it mean to be spiritual in the modern age and what are the new facets of spirituality that we're now learning. We talk about his emergent philosophy of the evolving nature of the universe, including the psyche. We talk about the current state of the world, which includes the pandemic, COVID-19, the civil unrest, the culture wars, and just the general suffering and struggle that is happening right now. And we also focus on, on, on the great things that are happening right now. We then get into some philosophical contexts where we're talking a little bit about determinism, free will, consciousness, reductionism, and how all these ideas have formed and how some of them make sense and are powerful and robust and some of them really fall apart under scrutiny in Tim's estimation and as well as my own. I hope you really enjoy this discussion with Tim Freak and we'll see you next time on Transformational Psychology with Ryan Wilsapple. I created this podcast because I believe that human beings have the capacity to transform and live deeply meaningful lives. My podcast is based on two pillars, education and transformation. The educational branch allows us to explore the cutting edge psychology of transformation and many important theoretical ideas. Monologues, interviews with experts, and transformational concepts are presented for the audience to engage with and reflect on. I also believe it is of the utmost importance that people have practical transformational tools for making real-life changes, so this podcast still provides applicable and digestible guidance to complement the theoretical component. It is my hope that this podcast offers education and transformational guidance to a world that is seeking meaning and connection. I'm here with Tim Freak. Tim, thank you for being here. It's uh, always a pleasure. 
So I've been visiting your book, Deep Awake, and it's a bit different than Slow Story because it's more phenomenological, I would say, in some ways. Mm-hmm. It's, it's really about the, the state states of consciousness that we have access to experiencing yep and i also attended a workshop of yours i think it was in the late winter of 2018 if i'm not mistaken here in boulder colorado and we experimented with these different states of consciousness and i wonder if people would get something out of a, a little guided meditation to start our conversation today and it's also a great way to sort of set the tone for the depth of being that i would love this conversation to have is that something you're up for i think think that's an excellent idea and uh, you called the book phenomenological and in the sense that uh, it's an exploration of what we're experiencing so when people say meditation sometimes it feels oh meditation it's a thing but really, it's it's an exploration of what you're ex- actually experiencing. And it's learning to put your attention in interesting places. So I'm all I'll do is I'll just guide you and everyone who's listening to place their attention in a certain way mm. and observe how it feels. How Fantastic. Fantastic. Uh, so um, the first thing is just be comfortable, be really comfy and let your body relax. And I'd like to experiment just with the attention on the breath. Just as simple as that. Just take your attention and focus it right into the raw experience of breathing. And as I'm doing that, suddenly my experience is full of breathing. It's at the forefront. And just to breathe is actually quite exquisite when I really feel it. So just entering into that feeling in the body. And if your attention wanders, don't worry about that. That happens. But see what happens if you just bring it back to the sensory pleasure 
of breathing. Now it's really nice to do that for a long time, but today let's not do that. Let's try something else as well, just as an experiment. See what happens if you now take your attention and place it on listening. To whatever's in your environment. It's a different sort of attention now because it's not focused in a place. It's more ambient. You're aware of the space you're in. Really listening. All the little sounds forming one sound, one flow of sound. And then let's end with trying this. Take your attention and make it now completely diffuse. So we've gone for it being focused on the breath and now just let it empty out into the totality of things. As if you're being conscious of the space within which everything exists. Very spacious. So you're conscious of everything that is, including yourself, as one. Taken as a whole. And then from that sense of oneness, focus it once again on the body and the breath. Your particular body, your particular breath.
and then open your eyes. Thank you, Tim. Wow. Talk in your book about the wow. And maybe only so many of us have been lucky enough to feel the wow in life. The wow, as far as I understood, it was, wow, I'm alive. I'm, I'm here. I'm impacted by this moment. I'm aware. There's a real sense of vitality and, and consciousness that arises through these types of practices. W would you agree with that? Did I, did I get it right? You did. And, um, you know, I've been doing these practices now for many decades and developing them. And, and you know, if you told me just 20 years ago that when I have the, the pleasure of, I mean, I mean, it's such a joy to lead even a short little journey like that, hmm. because it's so familiar. I can just, oof, and suddenly there's this oceanic oneness. So we can, you can develop the facility, but the, the wow, I think the wow, what I mean by the wow is that we're all evolving. Everything's evolving. That's what we now know. The whole universe is evolving and we are part of it at the leading edge of it. And whenever you experience something more emergent, meaning something which is more than you've experienced before, or really that, it's wow. So if you have an idea which you've never had before, it has a wow quality. If you fall in love for the first time, it has a wow quality. And if you wake up to that, oh my God, I'm one with everything. It has a big wow quality right. because it's a brand new thing. And, and it's all, you know, it stays new as well because it's right at the cutting edge of our evolutionary process, that. So that it's thing. never not there. Well, we're, always, we're always one, <laughs> but we're not always conscious of it. Right. And I guess what I'm trying to say is that the wow is, it's always an aspect of experience that is available to us, even if we don't see it. I, I, I think so. I don't see any reason why it's not. I mean, I don't think it, I don't think because it has that, I mean, if I look at my journey, the moments, the, the, because it, the first time for anything is like, can often be the biggest wow. And then you become familiar with it and it becomes a deeper wow, but it doesn't have that same first time wow. It's like, you know, with everything, right? So, and, but the deeper is you don't, you're not losing something really, you're just deepening it. So I think that's happening. The other thing that feels like worth saying at this point is that I don't think necessarily it comes in meditation. Uh -huh. um, I would say it, it can, and I really love meditation now and, and, and it's, and it's been important to me for a long time. But the biggest moments for me on my journey, especially when I was younger, they didn't come in meditation. They came in coffee bars, a blues club, <laughs> um, on the top of the hill. You know, they just, and the people I know who I've shared this journey with and some of the people I've been teaching, I hear the same thing. It just, you know, yeah, I was in the supermarket and suddenly it was like, oh my God. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, or, or, you know, there's, I, 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 don't, I don't know why, but I've had the privilege of being with a lot of people who've experienced it for the first time right the way back to when I was young. And, uh, you know, I have a memory of being at university and sharing this, like, there's this thing, uh, this waking up that can happen to you with um, a girl who 
actually ended up being my first wife, but I didn't know that at the time. Um, and just saying to her, and she didn't know what I was talking about. And then suddenly in the middle of the night, waking up with this bang, bang, bang on my, my bedsit door going, it's happened, it's happened. And, <laughs> and, and she had it. And it was like, oh, there you go. And that, so there is that quality to it, that it. And that's why I think traditionally it's often seen as coming by grace. There's nothing you can do. You can't make it happen. Ah. In that way, it's like any of the deep things. You know, it's like you, you can't make yourself fall in love with somebody, can you? It just happens. And it just happens. If you fall in love with life in the same way. But these practices help you cultivate it, especially once it's happened. But also it just, and different people, Ryan, I really think that's important. You know, this, that was my way. But then I'm quite a dramatic sort of person. You know, I'm quite an ex experientialist. I think yes. some people are much quieter. They, they take it more gradually. It's just as deep. It's just not the same style. Yeah, everybody, everybody's unique. They are, really. Way. I mean, yeah. really, absolutely. That This is where a lot of spiritual traditions, I think, get it wrong, is that what happens is that there's a particular person. They have a certain way of doing it, and then they teach it to people. And as long as they're teaching it to people like them, it, probably it works fine. But, <laughs> right. but when they start prescribing it for people who are completely different and going, oh, no, that's not it. You've got to do it this way. Then it becomes a, you know, well, a we, end. we as humans do have a ten we have a tendency to, to create the dogmas and, and, and to try to put things in tight categories and, and, and make them into something that can be packaged and, and exported. You know, so there there is that tendency to, to categorize things and to restrict them to a certain, you know, label, like this is, this is what this is. And that, is that, what do you think? Is that just human? Is that just something we can't oh, escape? I, I, I think it, I think it's, it's a good thing um, in, right. in, in essence, providing it's always open-ended. I mean, you know, dogmas are just what people, things that people thought were good ideas that have become solidified and gone, you know, past their sell-by date. And they're starting <laughs> to smell funny. You know, right. it's like, oh, that dogma is really, you know, it's like at the time it seemed like a good idea. And it's just like, no, we've moved on now. And then it becomes what we mean by dogma when it's, I mean, well, the word dogma is a good example. The word dogma used to mean it's opposite in the Latin. It used to mean something which was so deep you couldn't explain it by words. And ah, now it's come to mean something you believe irrationally. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but a doctrine, you know, a set of words you believe irrationally. So everything moves and changes. We have to keep... The important thing is to, to keep it authentic, but which just means you know, that you're, you're actually about your lived experience. It's about, it's something which you're really, act, you know, this is actually happening to us. You and I are actually meeting. We yes. actually are two conscious beings in this incredibly mysterious experience, growing, evolving, living, dying. And if we keep that real, yeah, this is, this is happening to us then I think it roots us in a certain humility, actually. Right. That allows it to keep growing. I love that. I love that. It, it reminds me of this idea that with, within the, the, the modern age of spirituality, there's, there's a new opportunity emerging, which I think is that we can all form our unique relationship to spirit or some sort of higher power Whereas historically we've needed to go through some sort of, you know, mediator like the church and only the few privileged, you know, priests or shamans were, were, were able to be validated in their religious experience. I, I, I don't know if I'm right about this, but it seems to me that 
there's there's a ripening there's a ripening opportunity to actually access revelation on an independent level to an extent that maybe wasn't encouraged or as available before i find for myself that my my own spiritual imagery and deep sense of connectedness it's almost like i'm i'm a pioneer of my own spirituality you know it's it's not it's not being mediated by other I love that yeah yeah what that's do you mean that's, that's a great phrase you should remember that phrase if you have if you i've if already you forgotten it tim <laughs> a pioneer of your own spirituality i love that yeah you're a pioneer of your own spirituality that's right one of the things which is really hard i think for us to grasp is and it's really important to try and grasp it is history and one of the things which is difficult about history is getting that human beings were very much like us and totally unlike us and it's it's hard to get the ways in which it's the same and the ways in which it's changed it's the same in that they were all human beings they were all doing human stuff and they were all facing some of the same dilemmas death you know struggle meaning but also they were different to us they, they they're it's almost like you know like um when you study um when they started studying animal behavior and they came up with this idea of action patterns and they looked at a duck and they went well basically it does one of 15 things or whatever you know it's mm. like or a, a pigeon it can do six things and it just repeats them well it's like that with thinking i think that we can think thoughts depending on what ideas we have. Well, the further you go back, the less and less ideas people have because they haven't had the ideas yet. So they're unable to think things we think. Mm. They just can't do it. It's impossible. Like we can't think the things that a generation 100 years time will think because they, right. they will have psychological tools that we just don't have because they'll be built on us. They'll be based, built on what we develop, which is what we're doing right now. Right. So that the human beings have really, in, in the psyche or the soul, psyche just means soul, it's Greek for soul. Mm. We have really, really evolved. And yes. one of the things we've done is we've individuated. So, that's, so I think what you're saying is exactly right. We are far more individual than any other um, people that have ever lived, by and large. Obviously, there were some real pioneers throughout time, and, but generally, I think that's true. And our inner lives are richer because of that. So we can think for ourselves more. We can find our own path through more. And all of that's really healthy. Yes. Um, the, 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 the downside, which, you know, one of the ideas in Deep, um, Deep Wake is that everything's paralogical. You can see things from two sides. So that's the good side. The bad side or, not, or the side we need to work on is uh, that can lead to a kind of superficiality where people just, you know, I like this idea. And, you know, it's like a box of chocolates. Oh, I think I'll have that belief and that belief and the nutty one. Mm, you know, it's like, it's like, no, don't take the nutty one. Um, you know, we need, to, we need to also develop the faculty to manage the richness of our thinking processes. Yes. And, and that's what we, that's what we're still doing that. Right. And, the, and to, to, to circle around to your idea of individuation or individuality, it's not enough to at this point to simply just focus on individuality because we are also social beings and, and we, we have to, you know, this way in which we, we can have our own consciousness and we can have our own experiences. And there's this layer of connectedness that we thrive on, right? 
And yeah. I love that aspect of your teaching because it opens the heart to the the other, the the person yeah. that the yeah. people that are in your life. So I think the one of the ways that I, I see that now is in you'll know that in um in deep awake I talk a lot about love, deep love, I often call mm-hmm. it big love as well. I've been doing that for years. And that's a really important word to me. It's very, you know, it's feeling word. And it it comes from my first wow was love, just huge love, whole universe full of love. And that's been one of the themes for me all the way through. But recently I've started thinking about it as what what I experience and what I see other people experience is another way of describing it is a universal benevolence, Mm. like a wishing well for everyone. And the reason I like that is it because the big love doesn't stay. You know, you, I couldn't cope in that whole like loved up, oh my God state. I couldn't hardly do anything really. Right. I, couldn't do, I couldn't do my tax returns or, you know, it's like I have to, that, it's a, that's a particular flavor. But the universal benevolence is there the whole time. Even when I'm shouting at someone for having me cut me off on the road or pissed off with somebody on the TV that I disagree with actually underneath i really wish them well there's this fundamental benevolence that comes through the connection of oneness and i think what's happened over the centuries is that the success of human beings has been huge love or cooperation or benevolence within the group Mm -hmm. and then massive competition outside right so within the group we take care of each other we live and die for each other but those bastards, we're going to kill them. We're going to take their goods. We're going to enslave them. And that's what we do. And that's been, that's been what's made the strong group survive and predate on the weak ones. Mm. But over time, that circle of benevolence has been getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And what's happening now, and it's been happening obviously for a long time with individuals, is that this, this awakening where you go, oh my God, I'm not this, I'm everything. Right. Arising as this. And at that moment, there's this universal benevolence, a fundamental relationship of goodness, of wishing well for everyone, everything, even at the heart of our Christian tradition, the place that the West has come from, you know, that love your enemies, it's been, even be benevolent to your enemy. Mm. It's a fundamental benevolence. And I think that is the, that's the movement that happens. So ironically, or not ironically, paralogically, let's say, because that's a better word, it's in the book, mm-hmm. is that we have in- individuated from the collective. So we're not just unconsciously, I believe this because everyone else does, or I, I wear these clothes because that's what we all wear, or I'm working class, I have a cap, I'm a middle class, I have a bowler hat, you know, it's like all of right. that stuff that we've <laughs> right. done for, the, all, for centuries we did it. Right. Now we're slowly becoming like individual flowers. Like, no, I'm, I'm, I'm not just one of, I'm not just an Englishman, I'm Tim. And I've got, you know, I'm different, I'm this, and everyone's doing that. As that happens, we become more conscious, more able to go to deeper places in the psyche. Mm. And that's where this oneness kicks in. And suddenly the limited partisan benevolence of I'm here for me and mine suddenly becomes oh, actually, I'm one with everything. Yes. And a massive embrace takes place. 
And that's a transition, I think. That's the next step. And, and, and as you said, the, the name I've given for that is the, is the, in, the this isn't in Deep Awake, but it's, right. my, it's not in anything, actually. I haven't written about it yet. But it's uh, the movement from an individual to a univigil, where a univigil is defined as an individual conscious of unity, conscious right. of the one. Right. It, it, it feels to me like a consciousness of my interrelatedness to all things. There's this Native American idea to all my relations, right? I think, I don't know, is it Lakota, perhaps? Takuasi. Yes. Um, but, but you've taken that and you've, I think, updated it in a way that fits for the modern Westerner, just the modern person. It doesn't need to be a Westerner. Because really at the end of the day if i'm not honoring my place in the web of existence in in, in the way that I, I really am related to all things if i'm not if i'm not honoring that relatedness i'm really not honoring myself i'm not uh, yeah, you know what i mean because that is you <laughs> yes it's like going i honor my head but i don't honor my body or my legs <laughs> it's like, yes you, they are they are that is your greater body so in the meditation I did when we started this off, that's why I first took our attention right into the particular and then let it come out into the universal. So there's my particular being, but this being is actually an expression of the being of everything. There's one field of being. And this is like, to use a very ancient metaphor, this is like a wave on an ocean of being. It's that, it's an individual expression. And that is, a, is, is, not some far out mystical statement. It's the statement which is the heart of every form of modern science. It, 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 and it's, I just think intuitively everyone, you know, there, the universe is a one. Yes. It, it's, it's, it's a one, <laughs> it's the universe. Well, and, and we now know that it's come from one event, which was the beginning of this particular universe. So what else could you and I be but the universe? So we are the universe talking to itself, going, what am I? What have you made of it? Right. It's, it's the Rumi quote, you are the whole ocean in a drop of water, right? Yeah. That's yeah. It. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. I want to I sequence this conversation through a bit of a different context, because what's happened over the last year or so has been incredible on a social level. It just absolutely devastating in some ways, amazing in other ways, interesting, painstaking. Uh, you know, we've had a pandemic, COVID-19, we've had social unrest, we've had, you know, what's happening in the United States right now in Texas, this freezing, freezing over and, and massive suffering of many individuals. And you know, last time we talked was before any of this happened. You know, you know what <laughs> right, I mean? So I a, lot, a lot has happened since yeah. since last winter. And I'm wondering, Tim, you know, uh, <laughs> I'm wondering, <laughs> I'm, I'm wondering, Tim, you know, given your status and role as a leader, a healer, a teacher, whatever you feel inclined to call yourself, uh, what, what do you see? What, what do we need? What, you know, how, how are we going to get through this? This is, this is a turbulent time for, for many nations, for, for many people in the world. And how do we make these deep awake 
teachings or these individual teachings, these teachings of love, how, how do we bring those in to, to these times? Well, I think there's two things which come to mind, Ryan. I mean, you're, you're certainly right. I mean, I've never, it's the first time there's ever been a big, well, the, the AIDS pandemic had an effect when I was young. That was, you know, pretty dramatic. A friend of mine died, you know, so forth. Um, so it's not completely new. Uh, there's so much, really, isn't there? I mean, you know, the, the, you've, you've, you've li the list is, you know, one is about our relationship with nature. Oh, we're biological beings. Well, that's a message we've been getting from lots of quarters and suddenly it's come up real close. It's like, no, we really are biological beings and biology is a much greater threat to us than mm. weapons or people. You know, we spend a fortune on weapons, but actually the far more people always anyway will die from these things than from mm. violence. You know, well, there's not much death from violence actually really and so it's kind of partly it's about perspective um i think despite everything i think i've been amazed i mean i know it's different in america but i've been astonished by the level of cooperation mm -hmm. um that's been a real like yeah that's the way we'll get through it just massive cooperation of course it's still going to be we still got struggles that haven't even started yet to do with the economy and all the rest of it but um that's a good thing. Um, and I'm, I, I, I hope that it will encourage us to widen our circle of benevolence and, say, and come out of it in a new way. Now, at the same time, we're getting these kind of, you know, the culture war thing, um, which is, a, it reminds me of a kind of, when I, when I was working with religion 20 years ago and being critical of fundamentalism, I thought fundamentalism was actually pretty dead. And, mm. and it did feel, I mean, you know, I don't want this to sound an unpleasant metaphor, but it did feel a bit like we're kicking a corpse here. It's over, but we're just kind of going, leave, leave that behind and let's get into this new spirituality. And then what happened? 9-11 happened and fundamentalism was back and off it went. And mm -hmm. I think that, the, that just like in myself, I see things I think I've dealt with come back, but it's a, but it's a process. And then I deal with them again and then eventually they go. And I, so I think these conflicts around identity um, are holding us back from our individuality. I see them arising both on what gets called the left and the right, both. Yes. And um, I think they're increasingly like, you know, it's like um, <laughs> and the inability to see that is always a, a hallmark of people getting caught in their particular mindset. So there's a whole lot going on, but what can get us through? I just think, you know, look, this is the process. It's always like this. And one of the things which I spend a lot of time trying to oppose is the idea that things are really bad right now because mm. they're really not. I mean, th there are terrible things always. We're facing new crises, climate change, things we haven't faced before. They're very serious. We should act now. However, or as well, mm on most things which our ancestors struggled on, things have never been so good. Mm -hmm. There's never been so little violence. There's never been so little um, uh, disease, despite the pandemic. Mm -hmm. you know, we've coped with so much. There's poverty's going down. You know, we've come a huge way. So when I hear, for instance, you know, like say in the culture wars, where I'll hear someone saying, you know, take something like, like, like racism, horrible, terrible, you know, ugly thing mm. so we need to act always to move beyond it but when i hear someone go it's you know we've done this for decades and nothing's changed and you go 
everything's changed. What are you talking about? We live in a completely different world than, than we did when I was young. Utterly different, let alone 100 years, 200 years. <laughs> it's right. utterly different. So part of what we've got to get is don't get swept up in the particular drama of the day. Actually see that we're in an evolutionary process, which is Martin Luther King said, tends towards justice, is tending towards the good. It's not like an arrow. It's not like it can go wrong. But there is a tendency towards evolution that's got us here. We need to harness yes. that and just yeah. and, and go with that. If I, if I may be a bit Nietzschean and, and Jungian, the, the, I, I think they nailed it in the sense that the, the, the prediction was if, if, we, if we don't replace the religious substructure with something adequate, uh, which I would posit is something like this deep love that you've, or this universal benevolence or this new individual, individual spirituality, if we don't replace that old tribalism with something new, what's going to fill it is ideological possession, whether it's political or otherwise. And so I, I really think yeah. we're in a spiritual crisis, not, not so much as, as much as a, you know, like you, you mentioned, things are going really well. I think what's not going well for a lot of people is what, where's meaning? What, what does it mean to be alive? You're, you're, you're absolutely right. And of course, also, please don't let me, anyone listening to this, I know that individuals are also having a hard time right now. And I know there's always right. people who are having a hard time. But, you know, I'm reminded of Charles, Charles Dickens how many centuries ago, two centuries ago, with uh, the, the beginning of um, Tale of Two Cities. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Right. And then he just lists it all. And it's like, yeah, and we're still in the best of times and the worst of times. We're always in that. Yeah. And for any one of us, it could turn into a nightmare tomorrow. Well, it could do now. I mean, I could just suddenly grab my chest and nightmare begins. You know, oh, Ryan, I'm just, you know, that could happen. Of course it could. I'm 62. Right. It could happen right now. So that can happen. So we're, that's what we're in. We're in that, that dilemma. And then I think you're right. So things get better. And one of the things which has got better is that science has enabled you and I to have this conversation in different continents. Hurrah for that. Isn't that great? But it also is literally soul destroying. So you're faced with this soul destroying, very powerful new understanding versus a rather outdated religious understanding. Or at the moment with the, the, the hugely generalizing here, the new spirituality is a little bit unformed and often irrational and yes and tied you, up with yeah. conspiracy theories now unfortunately and oh, and, yeah. and all of that and what we need in my humble opinion is to integrate the best alongside science and basically every day that's what i do i sit in front of my computer and i'm working on this philosophy which i am beginning to put out it's in soul story and it'll be in my next major work which i hope to come out this year which is addressing that meaning. Because yeah. even if you put your head in, in the sand, sooner or later, life will come and pull your head out of the sand with disaster. And that's what Jung could see, I think. Jung yes. was, you know, his whole idea, look, if you don't change, you'll get hit by a bus. It's like, you know, which he said to one of his, 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 um, his patients. And what he's saying there is, look, you know, sooner or later, you're going to have to face your vulnerability. You're going to have to face death and all of these things so yeah. that's where meaning is and, and 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 the thing which you said was so i think it's so right is that the, the need for meaning is so great that that's what fuels these ideological bubbles because it's self-righteous 
I know the truth and I'm fighting for the good. No, I know the truth and I'm fighting for the good. Right. And you're evil. No, you're evil. And 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 it's a replacement from for a genuinely deep understanding of the meaning of existence. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Well, and and I I don't think anyone can underestimate how important the type of work you're doing is, along with some others that are doing similar work, because what we have is secular secular thinking, archaic religious mythic thinking, um, and then everything really in between on that spectrum, you know, the, the conspiracy you mentioned. And there's very few people doing the hard work of synthesizing these different nodes of reality, very yeah. few in a coherent way. Yeah. I think coherent is a very important word. There needs yeah. to be compatibility across multiple domains that, that can survive a formidable assault, uh, you know, intellectually, let's say. Oh, I love that. that oh God, that's, that's twice you've done it now. <laughs> Coherence amongst multiple bonones that can withstand a co a, a, an assault. And that's, yeah. that is precisely what I am attempting. So, you know, I've, I'm, I, if I go ahead with the project, it will be about probably, I don't know, between 20 hours of, of audio, putting forward that something which I hope can withstand intellectual assault. It is that robust and coherent. Yes. And the only way of, of doing that is I have to take it to bits every day and make sure it stands up. And so far it's doing really well. Um, and I, sh I thought I was going to finish a year ago and I'm still doing it because it's a lot. Like you said, it takes a lot. Um, but that's, that's my contribution. That's what I'm trying to do now. I've moved on from where, where I was in Deep Awake, which was very much like, I just need to give people this experience. That's what I can contribute. I'm still doing that, but less focus on that. Now it feels like, oh no, we need meaning. We need a coherent story, which points to that experience and its significance. Right. And right. That's, that's what I, that, and it has to be scientifically valid as well as spiritually robust. Mm, beautifully said. So can you tell us just a little more about what you're working on and, and you know, kind of the direction you see it headed yeah. in over the next couple of years? So the fundamental idea, which has grabbed me, Ryan, is it's in Soul Story, and we've talked about it a bit before, but it, I've really pushed it further and further. So as a curious human being, I've just always been like, what is this? <laughs> In fact, I have my, my series, you know, What is Life, where I just get together with other um, interesting thinkers and go, what have you made of it so far? And what is this? And see what they say. And so this is my response to that. And the idea that I'm trying to make work, and I think so far is making working, is, well, I experience this as a process of becoming. It's constantly changing. And everything that, that happens is based on what happened before but it, it's something new. So it's always realizing a new potential based on what's happened before. Could be that, is that what existence is? Is existence the realizing, realization of new potentials in ever more emergent ways based on what's happened before? And it's mm -hmm. that's what's been going on in our universe for 14 billion years, which means that everything, everything that has a quality has evolved and emerged in this one process. Mm. So it's about going anything which is real from a quark to God, if it is real, has evolved and has arisen in this process 
of that we're experiencing right now, which we, we personally think in this universe is 14 billion years old, but this universe probably came from another one. Mm. And what that gives is the foundational narrative structure upon which you can hang everything. Mm. So if you want to understand physics, there it is at the beginning, or biology, there it is in the middle, or spirituality and the psyche, there it is at the end, mm. just in terms of when it emerged. And I think we can end up saying an awful lot about spirituality as something which is emerged in this evolutionary process rather than having to get pulled into mythical ideas of other realms that we've fallen from and all this stuff, which was how human beings understood it a long time ago. So it's, it's, you can look at the evolution of the psyche and of spirituality and you can see that people had new experiences for the first time. There was a time when no one had experienced that deep awake state. Mm -hmm. I don't know when that was, but certainly you can see that in what, the Axel Age, 2,500 years ago, there are numbers of people who clearly have. Right. So that's kind of new. And they experience this state. And like me, in their own culture, they, but they, they, had, they all thought about it in different ways, depending on whether they were Chinese or from Egypt or whatever they were. And then they, they thought about it with the tools they had. So it was mythic, because that's the tools they had. Yes. And, and saw it as, oh, there's a fundamental reality that we've fallen into this from and we're trapped and we need to escape. But now we can turn all of that around and now we can go, no, we haven't fallen from anywhere. We are emerging into something greater that the, the universe is flowering. It's not mm. fallen. It's a much more positive message. And I think it has a lot more possibilities. Yeah. I mean, it's literally open-ended It's going, you know, where are we really, going? I've no idea where it's going. It doesn't know where it's going. We are it not knowing where it's going. Right. And we are it going, like I said, you know, I, I mean this literally. You and I are an expressions of and embedded within the oneness of the universe as a relatively autonomous individual, relatively, but ultimately not, looking at... so itself so one of the key ideas for me now was a little such a little jump but it goes look the universe isn't one it isn't one the, the people the non-dualists and all those people that are going it's just one they're wrong mm. the universe is the one in relationship to itself and it's that relationship which is everything yeah on a, on a physical level time is relationship space is relationship energy is relationship everything that is is relationship and here it is right now this what exists for me is the relationship between tim and the universe same with you right so that we are the universe in relationship to itself and we are the universe asking these questions the universe right. has got to the you know started off as hydrogen and it's ended up 14 billion years later having a conversation about what it is right that's pretty amazing isn't it that is amazing it reminds me i, ha I was doing some reflecting a couple of years ago and this insight hit me like a ton of bricks and it was that the the nature of the universe is conversation and and, I, mm. and I, it didn't mean the spoken word literally it meant the exchange of energy between one or more parts you know to, to, to two or that's more parts it. okay that's it and it was really impactful because then I, I i took that and then i realized well what is what is conversation it's a it's a relationship so everything is relatedness. And then I looked inside of myself and I thought, well, 
I'm made up of many parts so that there's all sorts of conversations happening inside of me all the time. You know, that you know, one part of me thinks this another part of me thinks that. So there's that relatedness within, and then it just extends and extends and extends, you know, to my social and to, to nature and to the universe. And, and so that was a profound moment for me because I, it, it relativized my position in the universe in a, in a humbling way. And at the same time, empowered me to feel deeply connected and interconnected with everything. It was, it, it was just a jaw dropping moment for me. Uh, very profound. That is in yeah. essence, one of the key ideas that I'm exploring. Just that, look, and, 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 and I wanna, you know, I wanna really, cause you've opened it up, I wanna really push it and say, look, what I, th I think everything is relationship. Mm -hmm. There is no objective world. There's no subjective either. There's only subjects and objects in relationships. So everything has evolved as, let's call it, information systems. Well, you could call them intelligence systems because mm -hmm. they're like little systems that intelligently read, whether it's an atom or a mouse or you right. or me. It's a, it's a system which, is, which has some sort of relative autonomy, which is in relationship with the rest of the informational ecology that it exists within depending on its level of emergence. We're talking physics, biology, psyche, but it's the same principle. So everything is in relationship and, it, and, and exists only in relationship. It doesn't possibly exist on its own and it is being read and it is reading and the reading is the thing which exists. So, you know, mm -hmm. William James had this in, insight, which is kind of similar to something I put in Soul Story, but you know, obviously I had a long time before me, which is going, look, what really exists is experience. Mm. And that's actually, if you look, it's like, oh, yeah, what exists is experience. Mm. But he said that's not it's not subjective, but it's not objective either. And I think I'm saying something very similar. It's like where where every relative individual meets the universal. There's that relationship yes. ever changing. For us, that's experience. If you go down deeply enough, there's something which is from which experience has arisen which you may not want to call experience or put inverted commas around, which is being had by a atom with another atom or hydrogen with oxygen to form water is relationship. Yeah. And everything is, so there's um, John Vivaki. Mm, um, I love him. Yeah, me too. I had a great conversation with him recently, really enjoyed it. And he came up with this word transjective. I think he says transjective actually, but I kind of put an S in there for some reason, which is like, the meeting of object and subject. So everything is transjective. Everything. Ah. And nothing's ever a subject and an object. You know, it's like, there's never just you, is there? There's always no. you in the universe. Right. No, always. And that's as true for everything. So everything is transjective. So what's evolving isn't an objective world, which evolves and then eventually becomes conscious. What's evolving is always this relationship between subjectivity and objectivity on yes. all these different levels that will eventually become conscious. Wow. It's got a bit of a Heideggerian flavor to it because there's this sense that you're, you know, everything is kind of an extension of your phenomenological field of being from that perspective of the, you know, the quote unquote limited subject. But at the same time, everything I perceive every, every way in which I act in my environment, it, it's it's the separation is not as distinct as we yes yes think. and and it's pushing it's like going look take anything you know take take my cup here my cup of tea it's you know this is not an integrated system in itself it's it's an artifact but 
um, you know, I, um, maybe a, think of the plant behind me or something. It yeah. might be an easier thing to grasp. It's like that plant is is whatever it is, depending on what it's in relationship to. So for mm. me, it's green because I have eyes. Right, right. If I didn't have eyes, it would not be green. Right. That wouldn't exist. <laughs> that wouldn't mean anything. And before eyes evolved, no plants were green. Right. Because there were no eyes. That's right. the relationship between the plant. And, but the plant is in relationship to itself. It's in relationship with the air. It's in relationship with the insects. It's in relationship with the earth. Mm. And all of those things are perceiving the plant in a different way to me. But yes. that plant, as this, is in relationship to me. Yeah. So, you know, what's happening in the room when you leave it is not the room that you were in isn't there. That, that is, that that is crazy to when, think about, When you isn't walk it? in the room. <laughs> right. Now, it's not some magical thing of you've created it. Right. It's just that what's, what exists is always the relationship. So for the room to be the way you perceive it, you need to be there. Or even to be remotely like it, you need another human being to be there. Right because otherwise it will be like it is for the flies or the air or the, the room, all the, the, the elements to make it up or the plant or, because it's always the relationship and it yes. hasn't appeared from nowhere. It's just, well, that potential is there, but it's not being realized because it's not in relationship. Right. I'm not well read on Immanuel Kant by any means, but I, I do, I do really love what he said about, you can't know the thing itself in itself, you know, like what, whatever the yeah. object is, you're not, you're not perceiving it as it actually objectively is, if there is such a thing, you're, you're perceiving it in a hyper-specific way. And now- So we that's can... the difference. Yeah. That's the yeah. difference, Ryan. I'm saying, see Kant, I think, I mean, I'm no expert on Kant either. I haven't read him for 40 years. <laughs> but, um, but my memory of, of that whole thing is that he's very much a person of his time. And what you get in science is you get this rather, I think eventually an ugly idea which is the world you're perceiving, that's not really the world. Right, it discounts it. Yeah, it, um, because really the world is the lowest common denominator. Really the world is just atoms, They to begin with, that's what they thought. It's like, so really the world is atoms and this world, so you get, you get John Locke talks about um, the primary and secondary qualities. So the primary qualities are the ones it has in itself and those you can me measure with physics. And then the secondary colors like the green, that's arising because I'm looking at it. Right. What I'm saying is there are no primary and secondary qualities. All qualities arise in relationship. It has no qualities in itself you whatsoever. Right. All the qualities are arising because it's always in relationship with something. Right. There is no non-related state. Yeah. So to say what the plant is, you need to say, well, in relationship to what? Right. So that, that means that reality is fundamentally nebulous. And mercurial it, it, it means in some ways. It's, yeah, it's informational. And we know that, you know, if you go down deep enough, we one of the great insights of quantum physics was, oh, on this level, things aren't fixed. Things right. are probability waves. Well, that means two things. One is they're not deterministic. And two is um, they're not things, they're waves. And let's put in a third, they're mathematical. Right. <laughs> so, okay. Right. So that has become this. Now, if you don't, if, you, if you're a reductionist, which I think is a completely woo-woo science idea, Right. then you go, that's what's real. And we're not really real. This is just those probability waves doing their thing. And we imagine that we're having a conversation. I think that's nonsense. I think the whole thing is real. It's just, it's developed to such a sophisticated level 
of inter of relationship now that we're connecting as two psyches or two souls through it but on the yeah. basic level it's still probability waves yeah it's, but the whole thing is also now this i love and that. you get away from that you get away from that idea which is very prevalent in science and spirituality which is in some way you're creating this world it's not really there you know like so in spirituality it's just appearances in your consciousness or in science it's just qualia it's not right. really there it's just qualia whereas what i'm saying is no i'm looking at you in the real world <laughs> it's got a common sense right. this is me in relationship with the chair that's actually there that's what yes. it's like when well, i relate to the chair absolutely and and i think i think you nailed it with the the Kantian critique, because it, there is a way in which when you read that, it, it, it's it's condescending to things as they appear to the human psyche. Like, yeah, like as if, as, as if that reality is, it doesn't matter or, you know, isn't totally. And that's not the case. But but I love what I mean, just to talk about Heidegger a little more. I love what he did because he came along and my limited interpretation of what he was saying was like, no, it's not it's not just appearances it's appearances it's important it's it's your experience that this is the ontology of human existence it's being in the world being with the world and so i i feel like there's a way in which that can be turned on its head where it's it's like as to, to borrow from your language that it's an emergent reality all on its own and it, it stands as its own piece of existence it's not you can't reduce it to its parts it, it's it's irreducible it is the most, you know, we're experiencing the most emergent level as far as we know. I mean, there may be those, there's ones we don't experience, but so this is not less real. And that to come back to the beginning of our conversation where we, you know, we talked about the wow. And I said, look, it's when you experience something for the new time, first time. What I'm saying there is when you experience something more emergent than you've ever experienced before on any level, it's wow. So when you experience a state of your psyche or that, reveals the oneness of everything mm. it doesn't feel you know you could look at that and i i do this i i try and question myself i do question myself very deeply and it is quite sometimes a bit disturbing but i have to look at myself and go okay so when i woke up when i was 12 you know did i could it have been uh, you know am i a, am, am i a mild manic depressive and when i'm manic i think the world's all one and full of love why not people do so, you know, that could, but the thing which is marked about it, which makes me not go down that road, is that the, these healthy, deep experiences have a sense of greater reality, not less. Yeah. That, you know, you feel like, oh no, this is more real. Now, what does that mean, more real? Well, it doesn't mean anything, but what, 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 what people are trying to say is it's more emergent. This is a this is another level of reality I haven't experienced before. Wow, mm. and that's why that's why they're such important experiences, and why collectively, if we move into them, that will be the solution to all of those problems that you listed. You know, we need to move into these deeper states, and we are. We're, it's, it's happening. Um, right. It could take a long time. You know, I don't I don't expect to see it. You may not see it, but it will happen. Yeah, I think. Yeah, you know. It, it, 
I know I'll never hear you say that the psyche is is just an epiphenomenon of the of the brain or the you know the cellular processes. You know, one of the things I've learned from you is that it, it's it's the emergent level that we experience in the mind in, in the psyche is it has its own juice. It has its own life force. It's reality. Reality. Yeah. That's that's also in your TED talk that's on YouTube. I wonder if if you could add to that at all, just to, to help the listeners understand what what you mean exactly by that. That you know that we've established obviously that it's its own emergent reality. We're experiencing it, but you, you use this language of the soul. You know, can you can you tease that apart? I, I know I didn't tee it up for you very well, but no, no, you did. <laughs> I, it's, uh, you know, I I I. I'm still, I, I, I can't, I'm, my, my language changes because I'm constantly looking for the best way to express ideas. Um, but certainly when I was writing my book, which I chose to call Soul Story, um, and what I've done since then is I, I tend to often con conflate the two words, psyche and soul, together. And I do that deliberately. Um, I think you can divide them if you want to, but I think it's also good to see that fund, what, what do people mean? What do people mean by this word? The word psyche or psyche is an ancient Greek word. And it's referring to something I think really obvious, which is you are always experiencing a sensory world and a non-sensory imaginal world. Every human being does. Uh, you're all, not, well, actually the sensory world does go in dreams and you only have the imaginal world. So, but you've always got that. Always, 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 which is why you soon develop the idea, I think, that that's what I must be really, because I'm always that, whereas this comes and goes. And that's one of the great spiritual insights. So all of these words, it's like I went to, when I was in Venice, my, uh, my Debbie took us for our honeymoon before the pandemic. Um, we went off to, not honeymoon, um, <laughs> honeymoon, that'd be nice at this time, um, our um, anniversary, mm -hmm. uh, 20th anniversary to, to Venice. And I was at the Leonardo da Vinci Museum looking at some of his manuscripts. And what was fascinating is he used the word spiritual or the equivalent word and material. And what he meant was these two realms. That's what he meant. He just meant there's a material world of the senses and there's a spiritual world of the psyche or the soul. Mm -hmm. That's it. You live in two worlds. There is the whole doctrine of spirituality in essence. You right. live in two worlds. You are the relationship between those. And then the old tradition is you really belong in the non-material and you've fallen into the material. And the new thing that I think will arrive at is, ah, no, it's, it's more positive than that. It's the other way around. It's come, it grows out of the material into the immaterial. Right. And the problem with science at the moment is it's got these, uh, I think of it as three woo-woo dogmas, determinism, reductionism, and physicalism which all right. fit together and they're all nothing to do with actual science. They're philosophies that science is associated with that none of the theories rely on them. They're just right. extra ideas and they're wrong. And really in my humble opinion, they're silly. They just don't work. And, and, and because of that, the new dogma is soulless and meaningless because it reduces everything to the lesser levels. Whereas the whole thing we're getting is emergence. 
which is it's reaching up ever into ever greater levels. And once we get that, then we can we can see that spirituality is an exploration in a very deep way of the non-material level of reality, which is evolved from the from the material level. Yes, I love that. And I appreciate how you distinguish the scientific method from the philosophies surrounding it, because I think that's important, right? It's it's not that the method by which we come to scientific conclusions is woo-woo. It's that no, this no. idea, this idea around it, that the a physicalism is is a word that you used, where everything experienced in consciousness is just some sort of almost it's almost like it's a contemptible byproduct. It's, it's, it's like, it's like sloughed off. Like it's, it's unimportant. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> I, th- I think, th- I think it's gone like this. I, th- I've never, I've never shared this. This is something I'm working on right now. It's just a little thought, but it's something I'm working on right now. So it, if it doesn't work, just tell me. But I think it comes, I think the key idea is determinism. And I think where that comes from is that you go back to the dawn of science and you have a very strong idea of a God who is, who is running everything. So everything happens by God's will, as lots of people still think that. It's an incoherent idea, but it's very prevalent. Mm. Then you get the idea that there are laws of nature. And the reason we call them laws is because somebody laid down the law and the somebody was God. <laughs> Mm. So God lays down the laws and this is the way the world works. And the way that God's will works is through the laws that he lays down. So it's all determined by those laws. And because science starts with people like Newton, for instance, looking at mechanical physics, it's very repetitive. So it feels like this always repeats because the what I call the passivity the way that things the habits of the universe are very rigid on that level and tend to repeat Mm. I don't think they always repeat but they tend to and so you get this idea of determinism and and you it's come from this god and and the philosopher Laplace who is who's like the French Newton is the guy normally credited with going if there was a a super intelligence who knew everything at the beginning of the universe it would know every single thing which is going to happen. Right. And that's determinism. Right. So you've got this idea that there's, and, and the super intelligence is obviously God. So God knows everything that's ever going to happen because he's the guy who goes, okay, I've got all the billiard boards together and I've got the rules they're going to obey, go. And the billiard boards, balls hit each other in mechanical ways. Now, so, so that's the fundamental idea. All of that we now know is wrong. It's completely wrong. We Same found under you know, it's just not like that. Right. But what's come, we, we just talked about it with quantum physics, for example, there's other right. things as well. I think even the, the idea, you know, laws is a bad analogy in my view, etc. But from that determinism comes also then reductionism, which goes, well, if it's these simple laws just governing everything, that's what's real. This is all epiphenomena. Everything is an epiphenomena, just obeying those simple billiard balls ball rules right so now all of this richness of life and feelings and that's all actually billiard balls obeying god's rules right the laws right so what comes with that is then reductionism which leads to well used to be materialism which is well what's the simplest thing well matter 
the billiard balls. So that's what really exists. So now you've got the three woo-woo dogmas. Everything is fixed. There's no freedom. There's no creativity. It's just obeying rigid laws. We reduce it to the simplest thing, which is the laws and the things they, they organize. And what they organize is, is, is matter. Now, matter's dissolved in our hands. We now go, oh, hang on a second. It's not there. It's turned into mm-hmm. quantum possibilities. That's all dissolved. And so people call it physicalism now or other scientism or various other things. But fundamentally, those are the things. And, that's the, and they're all wrong. They're just, they're just wrong. Right. I, I agree with you completely. I, I, when I work with clients, I, I often harp about the importance of choice. We, we, we talk a lot about choice. Um, it, you know, we all experience that we make choices. Yeah. All, all of us. And I think sometimes the determinist will straw man choice and, and we'll use yeah. the, the least important examples of the choices we make. Like, did we choose to pick up our right hand or our left hand when we were prompted in a specific study? I mean, that, that's such an arbitrary example of choice. I mean, we, what about the relationships we choose? What about the attitudinal positions that we, that we, uh, you know, we pick up and we carry throughout our day? What about the, the, the choice to pursue a goal? There's so many choices that we make. And that's not to say that our will is absolutely unrestricted to the extent that we aren't impacted by our instincts. Um, that, you know, for example, we can't just, we can't just totally transcend every bodily restriction through this idea of free will. But to me, what free will means is, is that within, within the, within, was it, I don't even like the word confines, within the unique delimited sphere of my being, I have a, a sense of autonomy and, and soulful directedness that I can implement with the complexity, not, not, not against it. Yes. Look, you know, there's two things really, which is why, like, the first thing is, one of the things that comes with reductionism is the idea that everything's happening from the bottom upwards. But things don't just happen from the bottom upwards. Things happen from the top downwards. The, the, The flow of interaction is happening throughout. So things change by being in part of a greater context. And then, you know, like right now, oxygen is just in my body is just being oxygen. But my body is moving it about for its own purposes in the blood. And it's doing all of that for its own purposes. And the oxygen doesn't know nothing about it. It's just being oxygen. So the lower levels don't, it's not all the lower levels. There's a top-down influence as well. Mm-hmm. And the top-down influence here is of the psyche. So the psyche is the very emergent level. And I'm intending to convey these ideas to you. And then my mouth, I don't even know how it does it, makes these complex movements very quickly <laughs> and it throws air out. And the next thing you know, I've sent you symbolic messages and you've read them and we're able to share these immaterial things called ideas and now you have a piece of information which you didn't have before it exists mm-hmm. it has its own nature you could pass it on to somebody else uh, but it's nowhere in the material world it for a right. while it was represented as movements in the air but now it's something in the psyche right and the idea that that all of it gets reduced is crazy Yes. It's just, just it, it, it just, it's the opposite of this emergent vision, which is the thing is the one reality is constantly becoming richer. Yeah. And it's, and it's all real. Oh, that's beautifully said. I want to talk about Sam Harris for a minute because I like mm. Sam Harris a lot. Me too. I, actually, Me too. I'm on day 20 of his waking up meditation course, um, hmm. which has been just exquisite, lovely. Wow. 
you know, the funny thing is that the more I do his meditation app, the more choices I feel I have every day, which, which is, ironic, choices, which is ironic, right? Because he, he's a, he's a bit of a determinist. He is. And he, he almost makes a phenomenological backwards argument, which is to say, yeah, yeah, yeah. We experience that we have choices, but really on this objective level over here, they don't, they don't exist. And I can't ever quite figure out exactly what he's trying to get at because first of all, what is the value in in this objective layer of reality that you never experience? Like you know, like I understand that as a philosopher, there's an interest in, in just talking about what reality is. I, I get that, and at the same time, I struggle with the idea that that's somehow disconnected from our day to day lives. And, and to me, any philosophy that doesn't incorporate phenomenology is is somewhat incomplete. So that's that's one. Two is he he does use these experiments as, as a, an argument where, where I don't know exactly how they're set up, but essentially, you know, they'll have someone choose to raise one of their left or their right hand, and they'll prove somehow neurologically that the, the, the decision had already been made by the body before they were consciously aware. So that in essence, what that's saying is that conscious choice is actually a byproduct post hoc rationalization that never actually happened and never actually occurred. What I'm trying to reconcile with Sam, because I like him so much is, and maybe this isn't something that can be reconciled, is how, how do you be a proponent of meditation and, and, and deep awareness and consciousness and, and, and living a better life? And then at the same time, pedal determinism. It just, it, it well, feels incompatible to me. It, it, it isn't, unfortunately. I think it's completely wrong, but you, you know, I, I, one of the and a person who was very influential to me 30 years ago was Ramesh Balsakar, who was a student of um, Srinivasagadatta Maharaj, the Advaitic teachers in, in India. And uh, Ramesh Balsakar's whole thing was, look, it's all one. You don't exist as an individual. You have no free will. There's no one to have any free will. It's all just happening. Mm -hmm. And it's all just the causality of things playing itself out. And you have the illusion of being a self and you have the illusion of having some will. And the way to be, to, way to be um, the way to wake up is to realize there's no doer. And that was the key phrase, which you'll see from lots of teachers like that. Now, I think the reason that that kind of non-duality gets a, and science get on so well is they're both massively reductionist. Mm. So the message over here is there is only all the one, it's only one. Whereas I'm saying, well, it's not really not, is it? Look, it's the one in relationship to itself in myriad ways. And the relationship is what exists. That's what exists. That's what matters. Right. That's what's evolving. And science, the same science for the reasons we've, we've discussed in some length, it reduces everything. It's just, it's just, it's just until it disappears. So then you're left with, okay. So like uh, A.N. Whitehead says, you know, if you've got a theory which sets out to explain what exists, what life is, and you end up with a diminished sense of what life is, you need to be, you know, question that. And that's what science has done. Now, yeah. um, but I think the reason I think it's wrong is, is twofold. Just, just, I mean, there's lots of the experiments and obviously I, I can't address individual ones, but fundamentally what they show is that consciousness is reflective, which is what it is. So that, you know, I'm not decide, I'm not consciously deciding how to move my mouth or even what I'm gonna say, it's happening too fast. Right. If I had to stop and think about it, I'd be quiet, I'd reflect, and then I'd say something, but that would be very, very unproductive. And mostly I can just do it. Right. And it's unconscious because, but I'm not just the conscious bit of me. I'm all of me, 
including massive, most of, most of it is unconscious. And then my consciousness is just the attention. It's a focused form of subjectivity, which goes, sure. you really matter. So at the moment it's focused on you. It's not really focused on what I'm gonna say, because I don't know what I'm because it's I'm becoming <clears throat> conscious of that as it happens. But if I said something stupid, I might stop and reflect on it. Right. So when these things, what these things measure is the fact that most of it's happening unconsciously, which it clearly is. And hallelujah for that. That's why where we function, we function at our best. It's like the, the idea in thinking fast, thinking slow, that the book, that, that the thinking fast just happens when we act. And then the thinking slow is when we become conscious of it. And it's yeah. hard work. It slows us down. You know, it's why when you're playing an instrument, you don't want to stop thinking about it. You want to think about it while you practice and then just do it or playing a sport, for instance. Right. But at a certain point, there was a choice that was, there was a way in which yes. we consciously programmed our unconscious. Or okay. okay. So, so there's two elements here. One is what's happening in those experiments. Well, what's happening in those experiments is just simply measuring the fact that we respond unconsciously and then consciously notice it. Right. Because consciousness's job is to be reflective. That's what it right. is. Then there becomes, well, what about choice generally? Is there an element within that? If, if I am all of myself, including my unconscious, mm -hmm. is it still choosing? Even if it's unconscious, is it me choosing or is it really billiard balls? And so for that to be, for there to be, what it, it, do we live in a deterministic universe is what we're saying. And what we've discovered is no. We do not live in a determinist. In fact, there's some, um, my friend Ian McGilchrist, who wrote- um, He's wonderful. Yeah, so he wrote uh, the, the Master and His Emissary. In his right. latest book, which I think might be out now, he, he gave me a copy before it came out, and he had this um, uh, example, some, some research, I can't remember the people that did it, but they were working out, given the way that probability waves work on a quantum level, how many billiard balls could you actually predict where they were going to be based on the fact that they're that quantum possible quantum um, randomness is happening on the lowest level when mm. you do hit the billiard ball to what degree could you actually go this will definitely they, they will mm. definitely end up here eight billiard balls after eight billiard balls you can't say anymore right because the quantum effect is too great so what that tells you is that at the bottom of the universe there's something creative at the lowest level, it's random. Right, exactly, not, yeah, right. That randomness is coming through all of the organizational aspects of the universe, including us. And then it's being harnessed by all these information systems for their own purposes. And we are, ha we are harnessing that creativity and we experience that as choice. So that it is, and, and the less uh, the more emergent it is and the less passivity, the less rigid it becomes because the habits of the universe yeah. are weaker. So on this level of the psyche, it's pretty free and it's pretty creative. Like you said, it can't, it can't, it has to work on what's there. It can't, it, you can't think a thought you've never had. You can only right. take thoughts and put them in new orders, but you're choosing it. Yeah. You said two words that I want to put together, creativity and choice. Uh, my mentor in psychology, Dr. Strachan, started Center for Creative Choice. And the idea was that you become aware of all these distinct drives inside of you, these, these drives towards certain ends. You could call them subpersonalities. That's what I prefer. 
And, and through that awareness, there's a soulful sense of choice that continues to emerge and that, that, that these choices are creative, that, that it's, yeah. it's not that there's one way to deal with life that's, that's necessarily the right way or the wrong way. It's that when you assimilate all your options and, and, and your, your possible manifestations in life, and then you make them conscious, there's a real sense of directedness that, that occurs in, in intentionality. And I suppose the reason that the, the, the determinism argument seems untenable to me is be, because yeah, I might not be, I might not be thinking through every aspect of my automaticis, autom, how do you say automaticity, automaticity, but th there are, there are ways in which choice emerges for me on the most important levels in my life. And yeah, it's not going to be, you know, whether or not I raise my left or right hand or you know, every word that comes out of my mouth in this moment. But, but when it comes to the overall thrust of my being in the world, the, there is a sense of personal responsibility and choice that, that feels so real, it is so important. Uh, so I guess what, I, what I'm trying to say is that, I guess I, 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 coming back to Sam Harris, and, and he's not here to defend himself, so it's not really fair, but I guess what I, from what I hear, Go ahead. I was just going to say, the thing to remember about Sam is he's a determinist, so he has no choice about what he believes. Right, right, right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He's just programmed to believe that crazy idea, because, <laughs> and there's no way out for him. <laughs> well, well I, I suppose what I'm trying to say is that it, it doesn't seem to me to be giving the idea of choice its full due. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't Listen, seem to be. I'm with you, Ryan. Choice is the cutting edge of this and it's something which has been evolving and once you've got once you have the imagination what is that right you know it's the ability to frame possibilities imaginatively it could be this it could be that yeah and that's developed from a very useful tool whether you're hunting or being hunted so right. I go, it's gone that way it's gone that and then and that ability to reflect slows you down yeah but it allows you to try out something before you do it and then choose the one you want to do. Yeah. So a huge, and, and then we have evolved that and evolved that and evolved that. And now we're choosing what we believe. And it's like structure upon structure. It is the creativity of the universe at its most emergent. It's the thing. And that sense we have that are, that we matter as individuals. Yes. And, and, and the reductionists that try to destroy our individuality, whether they're spiritual or scientists physicalists they're wrong right we, we, it, the universe has developed as individuals and what marks us out more than anything is our individual creative choices yes that's, that's it I love that's that. what we, and we need to choose more and more and more so that we can reflect on all sorts and what we're doing now is reflecting on ideas and then you and i and anyone listening to this can choose which one they want to develop or which one they go with for now or which one resonates for them with their other ideas for now. And that's, this is the leading edge of the universe evolving. This is not some epiphenomena. Right. This is it. Yeah. That's, <laughs> thank you. Um, do you got time for one more question? Yeah, sure. So <clears throat> this one's really interesting to me. I think we kind of bumped into this last year and, and I've thought about it a lot. Consciousness, you know, we have the subjective experience of I and then we have all those things which which are traditionally referred to as unconscious. Uh, I even like I like the word automatic 
uh, too, because it, it leaves some open possibilities. The question I have is, is it possible that what we refer to traditionally as unconscious has, an, has a consciousness all of its own and that we, we just don't know it because it's not the experience of I in this subjective moment? Is, is it possible that the, the consciousness is more sort of polytheistic and, and less you know, monocentric than we thought? I mean, I asked you this last year, but I didn't do a very good job articulating it. And I don't know the answer. I'm just wondering, is it possible? My, my, my own response would be, don't, I, I, for myself, would be don't, don't associate the I with consciousness. Mm. It's everything. I'm not, I'm not the conscious bit and I'm not the conscious. It's like, you know, I'm, I'm only the tip of the iceberg, nothing to do with the rest of it. It's right. like, no, I'm the whole iceberg. And I've evolved and I am the universe with all of this past behind me, rising up into something which can focus some in some places. But most of what's going on in my body, for sure, and in my psyche, I can focus there a bit. And uh, mm. and if you go into it, you can start seeing how it's structured. And, and, and there's, well, it's structured by all the ideas of the past, what Jung called the archetypes. Yeah. The simple experiences. So that, so that I, wouldn't, I wouldn't, I'd see it just as very rich. It's like, well, I'm all of that. I'm everything. Right. Right. So don't focus on this limited so, idea of I. So if you're saying, you know, if it's like you're only the choice, the only choices you make are the ones you reflect on, then that's not many choices. But but the whole point is you're making every choice. But sometimes you need to stop and reflect on those choices and do right. them better. And then that's where in by thinking, by calming down, by meditation, by therapy, by all sorts, mm. you can learn to reflect on yourself and make areas where you're making conscious you're, you're, you're choosing things unconsciously uh, in a bad way mostly you do it in a good way mm. but where it's not working out you make it conscious and then you can change it because you change it by reflection otherwise it just repeats doesn't it yeah yeah the, one of the things that uh, fritz pearls who's the founder of gestalt therapy not gestalt psychology gestalt therapy is if you don't have awareness you don't have choice yeah, yeah. Or, yeah. I liked that. Well, I, I thought that I mean, was it's true. It, 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 you know, it all depends how you define the words. If you mean right. a conscious decision, that's true. Right. But right. actually, Ryan is going to be making lots and lots of choices on the on, by because of who Ryan is, which is everything that makes Ryan Ryan. All the things, all the parents, your experiences, everything. So mm. that you don't have to, you know, when when someone you see someone fall down on the street, you don't have to go, oh, what shall I do? You just help them. <laughs> Right, because that's who you are. That's Someone else true. might go. I could take their wallet because that's who they are. That's a very good point. That's a very but, good point. You know, it's just that you're making those choices. So yes. if, if the whole universe, if we get rid of that idea of laws, and replace it by um, Charles Sanders Peirce's idea of the habits of nature. Right, right. I love that. Or I, or I quite like now just calling them the algorithms of nature, like right. it's an intelligence system which has learned how to do things. It's, it's, like, it's, like a, it's like a learning, it's like we've created machines that can go out and learn. Well, the whole thing is doing that. It's been, right from the beginning, it's been learning how to be a universe. Mm. And now it's us. And it's learning how to be the universe on this sort of level. And, and the difference is, until there is reflection, the universe can't change its own habits. That's brilliant. But now it can. That's brilliant. 
and it has to adapt to those habits. So if you want to be creative, like for instance, if you want to, if you want to, you know, certain point human beings went, wouldn't it be great if we could fly? And to do, actually be able to do it, it had to accommodate the habits of physics. Mm. But it worked out a way to do that. If we do this, this, and this, we can accommodate the habits of physics and still fly. And right. then we do it with ourselves. It's like, I'm still going to be Tim. There's some things will change, some things won't. I can, but I can work around it and I can change the habit of being Tim. That's wonderful. I can change my passivity mm. and therefore I can evolve. That's, that's so brilliant. Well, I think, I think that's a good place to, to end it. I don't, I don't think we could end it on much of a stronger note. Thank you so much, Tim. That, that was a pleasure and, and an honor to, to be able to speak with you for this time. And for me also, Ryan, I love talking with you. It's, it's beautiful. And oh, I'm, I'm touched. I, I love what you're doing. It's great. Oh, thanks, Tim. All right. Well, we'll have to do it again sometime. Yeah. All right. Go well, my friend. All right. Big love. Big love.